You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. So it's been an interesting morning. We've been talking a lot about various deals out there from the Verizon deal to the TikTok deal slash arrangement. For somebody who you know, can tell us a lot more about it now. Let's go to Lausanne, Switzerland, and Howard Yu, who is Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at IMD Business School. So the story is that Oracle edged out Microsoft in negotiating for the US operations of China-owned TikTok, which is the subsidiary of ByteDance. But Professor Yu, explain to us exactly what kind of a quote-unquote deal this is. Well, it remained slightly unclear how that technical partnership is going to be with Oracle and TikTok. What has been clear right now is uh, Microsoft historically, or over the past few days, were thinking about acquiring TikTok and make it safe for U.S. users. And possibly they need to open the algo or the software code and make it much more transparent going forward. And in the end, it's ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, said no to Microsoft. And in a way that the technical partnership is probably keeping uh, whatever algo behind will stay intact and trying to appease two government at the same time. So, Professor, what was the political uh, overhang of this deal or the political influence of this deal from your perspective? I mean, this is a big major development in the sense that for the first time, government are really adding on, acting on an ad hoc basis. So starting from the Trump administration, all of these are executive orders. There is no industry consultation. There is no independent inquiry per se. And then after all, the Chinese government at the same time were basically saying, you know, by dance, you cannot export any software code uh, in the name of you know, national security. Um, the ramification is the following, that businesses find it really, really difficult going forward to plan ahead, whether it's long-term R&D or product sales and marketing, given all of these becomes much more of an ad hoc basis. In your estimation, is Oracle the right kind of company to be doing this? <laughs> I mean, in the ideal world, this is kind of Range. Because if you think about Oracle, is historically is really a B two B company. They sell database services. It doesn't really have a large B two C market. As a result, the know how that they have 
would be arguably much less than Microsoft, where it's running Xboxes, all this game, and of course the B2C market is huge. And sort of the technical ability around AI is also amazing too. However, if you're thinking about TikTok, probably one of the biggest worry is once it gone through the deal, potentially go through, would they completely lose their independence? From that angle, then Oracle potentially becomes much more attractive. They're smaller. Their know-how around B2C market is much less, and quite frankly, they are not very strong in building algo. So from that angle, it's not too surprising that TikTok would actually prefer a weaker partner. In this case, Oracle. So do you think this deal, this arrangement, I guess is probably the better way to term it. Do you think this will actually work? Will it go through and will it actually do what it's supposed to do, do you think? I mean, over the long run, um, it's probably simply a cosmetic touch. Um, I mean, both administration, whether it's Beijing and, and, and the U.S. government, is most worried, oh, using this as a excuse of threatening national security. So what the business executive right now is trying to come up with a makeshift solution to appease on both sides. But I think going forward, what really have highlighted is organization can no longer pick side. Despite the geopolitics between China and U.S., if you're any multinational, particular here in Europe, when I'm talking to executives, they really cannot afford to pick side and ignore one market versus the other. Um, so that would cause tremendous turmoil in the business community as all eyes are watching how TikTok is trying to fend for itself. Yeah, it's really interesting. Can you put a value on the U.S. assets of TikTok, Professor? <laughs> right. I mean, right now they're talking about $50 billion, right? It really comes down to depending on how the U.S. acquirer can really leverage both of the user base on what is remaining as you can back engineers and algo. So, you know, at first I thought Walmart and Microsoft bid is interesting because it potentially, TikTok can be a very interesting e-commerce platform to rejuvenate Walmart's e-commerce. So that's a direct synergy that you could put a tag price on and $50 billion is kind of okay. Now for, you know, Oracle, then I'm not quite sure too certain what kind of price they would eventually agree a point um, because again without the software algorithm being sold potentially and if Oracle is simply a technical partner for distribution itself then the payback becomes much less tenuous in a way but maybe they are motivated by other factors as well. Uh, maybe they want to tell a new story to Wall Street, or who knows, maybe there's political motivation in stepping in and making sure the deal goes through. Um, but from a commercial aspect, uh, $50 billion uh, without some direct synergy on e-commerce, for instance, would sound a little crazy. So, Professor, just 30 seconds left. Get your thoughts on what some people are talking about as a technology cold war between China and the oh my US God. and the West. Uh -huh. I mean, the internet is totally fractured these days. I think what business executives around the world, we have to understand right now, we're stepping into a bipolar world, right? You have the US system, the China system, the European zone as well. And in terms of the GDP size, all three are important. And yet they conform very different norms, very different mm -hmm. regulation. So the idea you can build one product and spread around the world and conquer the world 
world is totally over. Going forward, decentralization is priority. Conforming to local regulation is second. And the third is the customer insight would be very different as the internet world continue to fracture. So I think this is one of the key dynamics that executive must prepare themselves going forward. Howard Yu, thank you so much for joining us. Howard Yu is the Lego Professor of Management and Innovation at IMD Business School based uh, in Switzerland. And Vani, it just seems that uh, there is a growing uh, kind of cold war when it comes to technology out there. Well, I imagine it's uh, the type of thing that we'll see the veil drawn back upon within the next few months. I mean, we already know that Steve Mnuchin is going to come to some kind of a decision this week on this particular affair, the Oracle TikTok affair. And, you know, we just don't know enough details yet. Yeah, exactly right. Not sure the structure here. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. Merger Monday is back, and it's not just TikTok. We also have another big tech deal, uh, chip giant NVIDIA. $40 billion deal for SoftBank's ARM unit. That's a UK-based uh, business. Let's get some color on that huge deal. We can do that with Anand Srinivasan. Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Anand, first of all, give us your 30,000-foot view uh, of this deal for NVIDIA. Yeah. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Money. This is a fantastic deal for NVIDIA, right? So you're expanding your ecosystem from being a graphics provider for um, uh, PC video gamers and um, AI engines, if you may, for the data center. And you're expanding it to an ecosystem that powers all of um, the world's smartphones, all of the world's tablets, all of the world's network devices. So dramatic expansion of the ecosystem. Um, difference between NVIDIA and ARM is that NVIDIA predominantly monetizes directly through chips it makes. Um, and ARM monetizes predominantly through intellectual basic building blocks that it makes. Um, which are used by multiple chip makers, some of whom are NVIDIA competitors. And, uh, and so it creates a little bit of a sticky wicket from a regulatory perspective. But uh, financially, it's great for uh, NVIDIA and great for ARM as well because they get a R&D boost um, as a result of the deal. What does it mean for SoftBank? Was this telegraphed in any way? Yeah, for SoftBank, I would imagine that this raises uh, cash, um, although the cash component of it is much smaller than we had um, initially estimated. Um, so it helps them sort of the going private ambitions are amplified a little bit. Um, when the deal closes, they'll get more NVIDIA stock, they'll get more cash, they can buy back more of their own stock, etc. And it furthers their ambitions. They've held NVIDIA stock before, so it's not like the NVIDIA asset is an unknown quantity for SoftBank. All right, Anand. So your technical uh, analysis of the regulatory is a sticky wicket. I bet if I spoke to Jen Ree, who does it for a living antitrust analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, would she tell me they have a very steep antitrust curve to climb? Yeah, I mean, you can see that by the, the fact that you need regulatory clearance, uh, U.S., U.K., Europe, and China. And even without the um, so the U.S.-China friction that is currently ongoing, this would dramatically um, expand the market. You have a sort of a neutral player being acquired by a customer slash competitor. How will they keep the entity separate? Um, they would obviously have to uh, promise their process in writing that NVIDIA will not interfere with um, ARM's um, licensing model. But the fact that ARM's intellectual property will be 
first known to NVIDIA. The roadmaps will be first. Um, uh, uh, NVIDIA will have first access to it. That sort of creates an advantage for NVIDIA that potentially none of its others, peers, customers, competitors, et cetera, have. So Jen is probably going to tell you the same thing, that it is a sticky wicket. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, ARM's customers are Apple and Intel. You know, they're the hugest customers in the world. ARM will become a U.S. firm if this all goes through. How would that impact our relationship with China, given that China still controls ARM China? Yeah, so that's a very good question, Bonnie, and it was asked on the uh, on the recent merger call that uh, NVIDIA and ARM had. Uh, the claim is that the intellectual property origination um, is still based out of Cambridge, um, and our, uh, NVIDIA intends to keep that asset as is and the intellectual property domicile as is. So technically, it's even though uh, ARM becomes owned by an American company, the intellectual property origination is out of the UK. So technically, um, according to them anyway, it doesn't come under the purvey of the regulators um, uh, in a more stringent manner. I, I, I mean, that's going to be a hard, um, a hard uh, piece of thing to convince the U.S. regulators that somehow they should not be involved in in that piece of the pie because NVIDIA is now the owner of that asset. So I think that adds to the complexity of this. And then we haven't talked about it, but China um, is, has used M&A, um, sort of uh, extended out the M&A um, uh, deal regulation for, for extended periods of time. They scuttled the Qualcomm NXP deal, if you remember. So they could use this as a as an example, a uh, showcase to show, okay, this is how you mess with me. This is how I repay you. Um, so that could be one part of it. The second part of it is also a lot of ARM, they could squeeze out um, ARM licensing deals um, in the in China as a result of this, make sure that they have access to ARM IP because they're trying to build up their semiconductor industry. So a lot of complexities involved, I think, um, the 18 months is definitely needed, um, and the regulatory part is definitely the stickiest wicket here. Anand Srinivasan, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Uh, a big, big deal in the space here. The question is, uh, will we see some more deals, Vani? Uh, but very interesting. Anand Srinivasan, Senior Tech Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us the breakdown on this NVIDIA deal for ARM, $40 billion. Uh, sure to face some regulatory uh, roadblocks, I think, on many countries, Vani. That's for sure. But I'll tell you something. Investors are obviously very hopeful about this because NVIDIA stock is up 7%, which is quite the move upwards. And it's holding on to those gains where we saw Oracle, yep. for example, earlier on make huge gains and not hold on to them. Meantime, Jefferies has boosted the price target to $680 from 570 And don't forget, we're at 520 now. So that's a full yep. $160 higher than we are now for NVIDIA based on this. Yeah, extraordinary deal flow coming out of uh, the market today. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, as we saw by the number of deals announced uh, today, this morning, over the weekend, technology remains at the forefront of investors' perspective. That includes such new and exploding uh, technologies as blockchain Get more color on that. We are welcome. Uh, we welcome Doug Borthwick, Chief Marketing Officer and Head of Business Development for a company INX based in New York City. Doug, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start off with just you telling us, give us a good sense of what INX is, what you guys are doing. Sure. So INX is a company that we set up a couple of years ago, and it's got two different areas. One is for a platform for the trading of cryptocurrency, and the other one is a platform for the trading of security tokens. Now, you may not be you know, familiar with security tokens, but if you think about something like Nike stock trading 24 hours a day in a digital environment, that's what a security token is. And it's our belief that in the near future, all equities will end up going on the blockchain and going digital because of the efficiencies you can find with that. And so we created a, an exchange for trading of digital securities and at the same time created a digital security that for the first time is an F1 registered with the SEC And I encourage your listeners to go look at it because I'm going to talk about some things. And that F1 is the first one that's ever been done. It's on the blockchain. But also, this is the first IPO in U.S. history that accepts at the IPO Bitcoin, Ether, and USDC or or, uh, stable coins. So first time you can accept uh, cryptocurrencies, and the IPO is currently ongoing. So, Doug, explain to us how this is different from competition. I believe the Winklevoss twins did something like this before. Am I right? I could be wrong. Well, you are correct. And the Winklevoss twins have one exchange, Gemini. I think that's the one you're discussing. Mm. And certainly, you know, you can trade cryptocurrencies on that. But in terms of security tokens, that's not something that they offer right now. And security tokens come under a very different regulator than does, let's say, cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies come under states' MT licenses or money transmitter licenses, whereas security tokens come under the SEC. And so, you know, it's a very big step for essentially it's not debt, it's not equity, it's a security token or a digital asset. And that's what we've, one, come up with, and then, two, we're creating the exchange to trade it. So do you have exchanges up and running now trading securities or trading assets right now? We do not, know, And so this, this, this raise that we're doing right now is to get them on board gotcha. in terms of getting to market. Now, we've built them. They're ready to go. But we need to raise capital in order to go out and get some of the licenses that we're looking for. So today we could trade with 25% of the U.S., but we're not turning it on yet until we've uh, finished with the IPO. Doug, who are the typical investors in an IPO like this? Well, the typical investors are, are twofold. One, you've got the folks that already understand the crypto environment. So that's you know, the folks that are holding Bitcoin, Ethereum, that, that go on and on about it. And that's probably about 0.2% of the population. Now, they see what we do as being putting handcuffs on securities because our security for the first time has KYC and AML built into it through what's called a smart contract. That means you can't tell, take an INX token and sell it to someone else unless they've already gone through KYC. So this is like you know, a huge, big change. Now, for securities markets, so that's 80% of the population, 
they're very interested in it because this is a giant leap forward for securities markets. Not only you know, can you do an IPO, but you can also do it, you can accept different cryptocurrencies, but you can also do it whereby you could list in many, many countries at once with a security token just through a couple of lines of code as opposed to you know, tens of millions of dollars of legal fees. And so you know, we're really making a big change. But also think about this, you know, Nike trading 24 hours a day, that would be fantastic. And millennials today, of their top five holdings, one of them is GBTC or Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And that means that, you know, that, that, that the millennial generation has a great interest in digital. And yet they don't understand why their dads or their moms look at news at 4 o'clock on a Friday, a bad news on an equity, and they say, don't worry, we'll get out of it at 9.30 in the morning on the Monday. That just doesn't make any sense to them. And this is the Amazon generation that wants to be able to do things right now. And so we've created a product for folks to trade equities immediately, 24 hours a day. What's the regulatory framework? What's the SEC saying, for example? Well, the SEC is who we've been talking to for two and a half years. We spent over 950 days creating the F1 that can be found on the Edgar database. And then in there, it shows transparency into a field that traditionally no one's ever had transparency. I think when you think about crypto and you think about exchanges, you know, they're all privately owned. Most of them are held offshore. There certainly isn't transparency. What we're trying to do is raise money through a community and build a community. When someone comes in and buys a token, we see that as being a potential user of our platform as well. So, I mean, I think that's a good run-up. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, if you know nothing about the blockchain and you know nothing about cryptocurrencies, would you still advise somebody like that to put, you know, give this a go? Well, I wouldn't advise anyone to give it a go. I think that they should look at the F1, the Edgar database. But if you do believe that everything, whether it's equities, whether it's fixed income, whether it's commodities, are going to move on to the blockchain, and we already know that China's in talks to do that with their currency, that Europe's in talks to do that, that the U.S. is discussing a digital dollar. So if currencies are going to move on the blockchain, and given that regulators love KYC and they like to know who owns what, where, and they like to be able to make sure that bad actors don't own things, then I think you can be pretty sure that equities are going to move on to the blockchain as well, and we're the first. Well, Doug, thank you for coming on and uh, giving us the the explanation about all of this. And I do hope you come back and explain to us more what's uh, going on as we progress. It seems like the blockchain and cryptocurrencies have been around a while, but uh, I'm certainly uh, n- no more educated than I was before. I have to re-educate myself every couple of years on all of this because the change is so fast. And it does seem to be a bit of a land grab as well. So really interesting to follow. Doug Borthwick is Chief Marketing Officer and Head of Business Development at INX. Well, a good start to the week from the uh, equity markets perspective, led in large part by $69 billion worth of M&A announced, bringing Merger Monday back to the markets, back to the fore, to get a sense of kind of how we think about all this M&A in the context of where we are uh, with the markets. We welcome Peter Kenny, founder of Kenny's Commentary and Strategic Board Solutions. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us here. Well, Merger Monday is back with a vengeance that pushes the pandemic at least a little bit off the front page, at least for a moment here. What do you make of the spate of deals that we're seeing today? What does it mean for the market from your perspective? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, First of all, the timing couldn't be better because if you look at the NASDAQ, the S&P and the Dow all closed last week at or close to their uh, 50-day moving averages, which, which means basically there was effectively a retest of that low that was established on uh, Monday of last week. So this is really, really up Tuesday of last week. This is really welcome news. It's great. I love the fact that it's 
big names like Oracle, SoftBank, the vaccine story is really, really important, and that's lifting the market. It really is coming at a great time because in the note that I wrote and put out to the street uh, this morning, um, my concern was that with all the indices, indices really resting on that 50-day and without any news out there that I could you know, shake a stick at, it, it seems to me or it seemed to me as though there was going to be continued weakness and potentially a drop below the 50-day for all three. Well, does the Oracle news signal that the China standoff might get sort of eased, if you like, because it's it's a major deal. This was one of the ways that the Trump administration was yep. going after China in a very practical manner. Yes, absolutely, Bonnie. This was actually a very significant deal on several fronts. First of all, you know, of course, there's a political basis for a lot of what's going on here, and there's a national security concern. But this is a way out that I don't think anybody was really looking at. And frankly, I don't think anybody was really talking about Oracle. So um, it it is a way forward that um, saves face and allows for a constructive uh, exit from where we currently stand, which was uh, very, very, I think uh, it was tense, frankly, it was tense. So Peter, typically when a CEO and a board decide to go forth with a large acquisition, it signals their confidence in not only their business model and the acquired business model, but also the economy, geopolitics, all those things. They're confident to put that kind of capital to work. I'm not sure I see that confidence out there as I look at some of the economic indicators and the still uncertain nature of the path of this pandemic. Oh, I I could not agree with you more wholeheartedly, Paul. I mean, we have an awful lot on our plate here. This was a one-off. This deal with uh, Oracle and TikTok, this is a one-off. This is not speaking to a broader picture other than what Vani really intimated, and that is that this is a graceful exit out of something that could have been a significantly larger conflict. So the, the deal is important, and it's welcome, but it's a one-off. The broader uh, landscape in terms of trade, global growth, domestic our domestic economy, there's an awful lot on the table that is that's going to be a, act as a headwind from here on through the end of the year, and of course, throw in presidential politics. I mean, it's the biggest variable of all time. Right. What are you telling your clients about the election, Peter? Um, hedge your bets. Um, just manage risk. Polls are very, very close. Um, I, I think that it, it's. Regardless of who is elected, uh, the, the aftermath of the election is going to test the nerves of the average American because I think it's going to be a, uh, an awfully um, difficult um, social economic scene on the streets. I mean, if, if what we've been living through over the last month is any indication, I'm, I'm afraid it's not going to get a whole lot better, even with the resolution of the presidential elections. How would you suggest hedging that kind of uncertainty, which is we haven't really seen that much in our past history. Mm -hmm. So if you're in high growth names, if you're in names that have really driven this rally and year-to-date performance by the NASDAQ, which has far outstripped the S&P and the Dow Jones Industrial, lever back on those names. Be looking to be in names that have not really provided much of the growth story impetus, but have provided consistent dividends. Um, you know, batten down the hatches, reduce your risk exposure. There's nothing wrong with metals. There's nothing wrong with alternatives. But keep your eye on those 
aspects of your portfolio that tend to drift, drift in parabolic waves. Um, they're great for traders, but they're not great for the everyday investor on Main Street. So just batten down the hatches. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, batten down the hatches. And at the same time, there's not much you can do, you right. know, hedging wise, right, Peter? I mean, that's, that's right. It's all it's all in equities right now. You 100 percent. The whole story right now for investors is equities. If you look at bonds, there's no yield. If you look at the global macro story, there's very little. I mean, you're getting negative yields in much of Europe. Um, there's really no place to go. Any argument for just US holding equity. on to some cash, Peter? Oh, there's not. Hold on to cash. Hold on to precious metals. Have a defensive posture in your portfolio. Look for dividends. And just make sure that the exposure that you do have going into the presidential election is covered, either through options or by just simply reducing your exposure. Yeah. Peter, thank you. Always illuminating to speak with you. Peter Kenny is founder of Strategic Board Solutions and, of course, also brings out some excellent commentary daily and weekly on the Wall Street uh, beat, if you like. And he's been a member of the New York Stock Exchange for the last 20 years and uh, lots more than that. So, Paul, if we weren't expecting to come into a tape that was nicely in the green, but here we have it. The S&P up uh, one and three quarters percent. The Nasdaq up 2.3 percent this Monday morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.